Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minkin, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is December 19th, 2023, and I'm grateful to be here with Rabia Egbaria. Rabia is a human rights attorney from Haifa who is now completing his doctoral studies at Harvard Law School. He's also an FMEP Foundation for Middle East Peace Fellow this year, for which we are very fortunate. A few weeks ago, Rabia published an op-ed in the New York Times titled, An Unarmed Teen Was Shot During a Ceasefire. Israel Was Never Held to Account. In this op-ed, which we link to on the landing page for this podcast, Rabia wrote about a Palestinian teenager from Gaza, Atiyah Nabahin, who was shot by Israeli troops in November 2014. There was no active war, no active conflict or escalation at the time of the shooting. It was actually a time of declared ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. And Atiyah, as Rabia describes, was walking unarmed on his family's land when an Israeli soldier shot him in the neck and paralyzed him. Atiyah sued the Israeli Ministry of Defense for compensation. This suit, as it wound its way through the Israeli courts, is where Rabia enters the story. So today we're going to talk about Atiyah's life and his case and how we can understand what his experience means for Gazans and for Palestinians more broadly. Rabia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sarian, and I'm happy that we're having some space after all of this, in the middle of all of this, um, to also reflect and highlight on Atiyah's story and the people in Gaza. Me too, me too. So can you tell us how he came to be your client? Sure. So Atiyah, I, I would have to say Atiyah, um, we will be talking on Atiyah, about Atiyah uh, in past tense today because Atiyah was killed alongside 12 other family members um, on October 8th, a day after, you know, the October 7th and, and the start of this mass violence, retaliation, vengeance that is in its essence, you know, directed at the people in Gaza, about Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and this is the point of departure and we can, and I think it is important, you know, for us to ground this um, in, in, in our approach uh, to understanding the current events and the, the, the genocide unfolding in Gaza today. Thank you, Rabia, absolutely. Yeah, so going back to, you know, to, to, to Atiyah's story, Atiyah and how I got involved in it. Atiyah, you know, was shot, as you mentioned, Saran, on the afternoon of uh, November, November 16th of 2014. It was his 15th birthday that day. And Atiyah was walking home from his school in Gaza. Um, and his home, which is located, you know, about 500 meters, the land of his family is located in Al-Buraj refugee camp, about 500 meters from the militarized um, fence that encircles Gaza, um, was shot in his neck that day. And it was, you know, again, as you mentioned, um, during a period of uh, supposed ceasefire, of supposed peace, quote unquote, uh, or the status quo in general in Gaza. Uh, Atiyah was shot that day in the neck. Eventually, this led to him being permanently paralyzed. 
Um, and that's where, you know, the legal process kicks in as well. A um, couple years after his, his, um, his shooting on his 15th birthday again um, by Israeli soldiers, Atiyah sues in the district court uh, of Bir Sabah, Beersheba. Uh, and he, he sues for compensation for, you know, civil remedies for his injury. Now, you have to understand that back at the time, this was post the 2014 war on Gaza. And um, back at the time when Atiyah sued, you know, um, the, the, the march of return hasn't yet started. But this becomes central and crucial to understanding the bigger picture. So Atiyah sues in court uh, asking for compensation. It is very hard for his family um, to afford uh, the, the, um, the expenses, the costs, you know, of, uh, of you know, medical expenses associated with his injury, his life-changing injury, um, like so many other victims in Gaza over the years. Um, and I, I really want to talk about Atiyah today and highlight it. You know, you mentioned the title that was published in the New York Times. There was an ad- alternative title that was also published. You know, they play with the titles sometimes. And I really liked that one better because it, it highlighted the systemic nature of this story and how Atiyah's story um, is an example or one story that reveals the systemic nature of this regime that devalues Palestinian lives. So Atiyah sues in, in court, in the Beersheva court in 2016. Wait, Rubio, what, what's the alternative title? It was something along the lines, uh, the story of Atiyah Nabahin re- reveals a system that devalues ah. Palestinian lives. Okay. So I think that really captures the whole essence, you know. Um, right. And you, you also, I just want to say, you mentioned the Great March of Return and um, some of our listeners won't know what that is. So I just hold hold on for a moment, dear listener. We're going to come back to that and, and why it's important in this story. So we'll be a pleasure. Yes, continue. absolutely. Absolutely. We'll go back um, later. I just wanted to drop it here. Um, so Atiyah sues in 2016 in court, in the district court. In 2018, the district court uh, dismisses his, uh, his lawsuit, um, citing a 2012 law basically, that bars Palestinians from Gaza, in particular, from suing for civil remedies, uh, from seeking recourse in Israeli courts. Um, Now, this has a wider history that we'll delve a little bit into about this law, about how it came to be. Um, But throughout this process, this is how the the legal process starts. Um, Eventually, I get involved as a lawyer with Adala in the summer of 2022. Uh, with, when we with are Ad- Tell us for one second, what is Adala? Adala. I, I, so I'm an affiliate lawyer with uh, Adala, um, which is a human rights center based in Haifa, Haifa-based human rights center. And Adala um, challenged this law of 2012 through the case of uh, Atiyah Nabahin. It uh, represented Atiyah. Uh, shout out to my uh, colleague, Sausan Zahir, who worked on um the the previous iteration of this case uh in the appeal to the supreme court the first appeal to the supreme court that challenged the constitutionality of the 
um, of the law, and we'll delve into all these details, what it means to challenge the constitutionality of this law and what's Thank the history you. of the law. Thank um, you. But basically, yes, I got involved in the summer of 2022 when the Supreme Court had dismissed the appeal against um, the district court's ruling. And in fact, um, invalidated the constitutionality of this law barring Palestinians from Gaza from suing altogether in, um, in Israeli courts. So that's where I got involved to file um, a rehearing request um, before the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and that's basically the last episode of, um, of the tedious legal battle that uh, started, you know, spanned from 20. Um, 16, in fact, you know, predated the, the lawsuit itself from starting from the injury of Atiyah in 2014, the targeting of Atiyah in 2014, up until um, uh, this year, in fact, 2023, when the lawsuit, the rehearing request that we filed um, got dismissed. Okay, thank you. So the, the dismissal of the rehearing, is that the, that's the court's final decision? Correct. Yes. Okay. So can you, will you talk us through the implications of this decision about, um, first of all, just ex explain to us what it means to validate or invalidate this 2012 law. Um, and what does it mean about the possibility for Palestinians to, to have any uh, opportunity for recourse? Yes. So let's break it down. First of all, let's talk about the law itself. So the law was enacted in 2012 as an amendment to um, the civil wrongs law, state liability civil wrongs law, um, that basically sets the framework for when the state may or may not be held liable in torts. Um, so that's the framework, right? Now, this law comes in 2012 as an amendment to this law um, and basically bars Gaza residents in particular from, um, you know, in fact, the way that it's framed is, is residents of an enemy uh, territory. Um, so Gaza becomes declared an enemy territory um, in 2014 after the war in a way, in a, in a retroactive manner, actually, that applies retroactively to shield Israel, in fact, from these, precisely from these um, um, lawsuits that are, you know, damaging civilians uh, during the 2014 war on Gaza. So that's the, the the wider story of the law, but in fact, it dates even further back. So in the early 2000s, Israel enacts a similar law that it applies not to Gaza in particular, but the so-called OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territories, to the West Bank and to Gaza. And this comes in the aftermath or during the second intifada, right? So after the second or during the second intifada, Israel, you know, um, uh, employs um, the, the military and, and it occupies Ramallah in 2002 in a very, um, you know, direct uh, militarized way. Uh, as we know, Ramallah is part of areas A of the Oslo, you know, accords, which means that it's uh, for the most part controlled by the Palestinian Authority, um, but that's also, you know, in theory more than in practice, right? Um, in any case, there was this previous iteration of a similar law that limits 
the ability to sue in Israeli courts for Palestinian residents of um, the West Bank of Gaza. And that previous iteration uh, was intended, again, to shield um, the military for uh, military conduct, you know, that caused damage, harm to whether bodily harm or property harm to Palestinians during the Second Intifada or in the aftermath of the Second Intifada. And that law, Adala, in fact, in 2005, files a constitutional challenge against that law. And it wins the case in 2006. So that's the interesting um, background to that particular, um, you know, um, to, to this development or this particular law and the, the importance of Atiyah's case again. Because in 2006, the Supreme Court uh, of Israel decides that taking a flat ban uh, or imposing a flat ban on such, um, um, you know, civil suits, um, even against Palestinian residents of the West Bank again, the, who try to sue the military for its misconduct or for its, um, you know, even potentially war crimes, um, that you cannot dismiss these cases altogether by imposing a flat ban, that you have to assess, in fact, uh, that there has to be some sort of individual test that the court assesses per each case, right? And it may be argued, you know, arguably this is a legalistic, nuanced uh, kind of articulation because, in fact, we know that the chances of Palestinians to win such lawsuits in Israeli courts are very, very, very low, almost non-existent, I would say, even. Um, and that's true. In the whole history of um, lawsuits, in Gaza, for example, there were less than 10 successful cases that Palestinians who were injured by the military or, you know, um, who, plaintiffs, in fact, um, managed to, to, to successfully sue in Israeli courts. So that gives us, you know, reality check, an important reality check that informs all these, you know, legal debates about what the court or, did or did not do in 2006. But the court in theory at least, said in 2006 that we cannot impose a flat ban you know, on Palestinians from suing because, and underlying all of this, is the idea that Israel controls the lives of these people, right? So Was the they, court recognizing that with the 2006 decision? Yes, I mean, the, the idea is that the, the, the court um, you know, recognizes the responsibility that stems from military conduct, right? Um, and then uh, recognizes, and the framework that the court adopted, which is interestingly, you know, contributing the public um, arguments that, uh, you know, there is no occupation in the West Bank, that the Geneva Conventions apply only voluntarily in the West Bank or in Gaza. Um, the court, in fact, the Israel Supreme Court does apply um, military law or the framework of occupation uh, to the to the West Bank and Gaza and works through it many times to legitimate Israeli action or in fact most times if not in all times um, to to you know interpret these legal tools and mechanisms and doctrines in a way that is consistent with um, the Israeli colonization pro pro project in the West Bank um, and that's a broader vision or or, or a broader uh, look at the 
at the jurisprudence of this court, but still um, in this particular case, and it's one of the um, exceptions, you know, in which the Supreme Court, in fact, invalidated a law of the Knesset, uh, one of a handful of cases that pertained to Palestinian rights, in fact, because, um, you know, most of the, the decisions in which the Supreme Court invalidated cases or laws had nothing or almost nothing to do with Palestinians' not, uh, rights, uh, directly at least. So um, this is the underpinning, you know, background to all of this. And the Supreme Court in 2006 says, well, at least, you know, there has to be some sort of individual assessment. People can sue or have to sue or have to be allowed to sue. And then you can apply this test. The court can apply this test. Um, which determines whether this was a military action, and if it is, was determined to be a military action, however broadly defined, you know, uh, the, the the case would still be dismissed. Now, what happens in 2012 with this newer version um, is that the law imposes an even more sweeping measure, and it reimposes a flat ban but limits it to Gaza, and 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 so there is two regimes here that that are you know, legal regimes that govern Palestinians in Gaza distinctively and Palestinians in uh, the West Bank in a slightly different way. The, uh, the operational uh, result is very similar in many ways, you know, that Palestinians have almost no chance, uh, even in the West Bank, you know, to sue uh, in Israeli courts and successfully. So this is an important point of departure, actually, that I do not cover as much in, in the New York Times article because there is no space yes um but this informs you know the the the, the start of this process and and the further exceptionalization and fragmentation and divide and rule policies that Israel applies to gaza uh, post 2007 right right yes great as you're bringing all of this up and 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 talking about this sort of divide and conquer and fragmentation i just also want to remind the listener that you and I have had conversations before about the fragmentation of Palestinians mm. and the and the legal the legal apparatuses apparati that that uh enforce that that fragmentation and and we're going to have more conversations actually about legal frameworks and and conceptual frameworks for understanding Palestinian experience spread out right. um so I'm I'm bookmarking that that conversation will happen and I'm going to bring us back now yeah. to so Point of departure, this 2012 law banning, uh, prohibiting Palestinians in a, in a blanket way from suing for damages. Mm -hmm. And and now it's 2016 and, and catch us up to 2022 and, and, and what it means. What was the, remind us a little bit of the court's decision and, and its implications. So from here, it's simple. All the, you know, the non-lawyers and the listeners need to know that 2016, there is a, a suit that Atiyah files and it's the first type of case that comes to um, um, to Israeli courts after this 2012 law uh, from a Gaza a resident that tries to constitutionally challenge this this law it's because the court says you know the prosecution tried to say that's you know this this civil um, suit should be dismissed uh, before even deliberated um, um, because of this law right so so Atiyah's case becomes the case that challenges um, the substance of this law constitution, right? In a similar fashion or a similar way 
to what happened in 20, 2005 against that other uh, law that was enacted. And so one would have perhaps thought, given that 2006 um, um, judgment, the, the, the challenge started in 2005, but the judgment of the court came up 2006, um, that said that it's it was unconstitutional to impose such measure. One would think that perhaps we were hopeful, maybe, um, but that perhaps, perhaps there is a chance there um, to strike down this law. And of course, you know, we are not naive. We know that the Supreme Court has this record, but we proceeded um, with 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 challenging this law. What else, you know, could we do when you have a person who is um, trying his only effective way, you know, to 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 claim some sort of free course. So all the the, the listeners needs to know in 2018, the district court, as I mentioned, dismisses the the the, the case, um, invalidates the law or says that the law is constitutional, the 2012 law in 2000. Then, you know, my colleague um, at Adala appealed to the Supreme Court against that decision. Um, and in 2022, the Supreme Court issues its substantive um, decision on the matter, uh, on the appeal of Atiyah, and basically invalidates the law, uh, or sorry, validates the law, I'm so sorry, um, validates the law and, uh, and says that it is constitutional. So the Supreme Court says in 2012, uh, 2022 that um, it is fine to impose this sort of ban, effectively, you know, banning or barring Gaza residents from suing uh, simply because they are Gaza residents, right? Um, so it's it's a ban that applies to Gaza residents simply because they're Gaza residents. And we can go into the nuance if, but I don't think we really need to, to be honest, to capture the essence of this court decision. The court says it is a legitimate purpose of the law, um, you know, that the rationale is um, to, to, to ban, quote unquote, um, material and moral support of the enemy. So, you know, this idea that any resident of Gaza is the enemy, uh, that any Palestinian is the enemy, civilian or not, we can see the roots uh, of this, you know, there are no civilians in Gaza. That's what I'm hearing. As you're, so right. it's, that, I, that. I, I need to make sure I heard this correctly because I didn't know this piece before. So part of the court's decision in 2022 says that the, the 2012 law saying that Palestinians cannot sue for damages, Palestinians mm. from Gaza cannot right. sue for damages because they're in an enemy territory. Correct. It, the 2022 decision says this law is constitutional mm -hmm. because you cannot provide, tell me the language again, aid to the enemy, essentially. Essentially, so, that it's a legitimate part of the purpose of the law, and it's considered by the court a legitimate purpose, um, is, you know, to, 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 to ban material and um, economic support or, you know, material and moral support um, as well, the, the, the word moral support uh -huh. or moral assistance to the enemy. That's right? just, this is, I, you absolutely hear the echoes of there are no civilians. There are no innocent people in Gaza. There are no civilians in Gaza. Everyone absolutely. is a target. I mean, the court wow. says in this decision um, that, you know, essentially all contact between 
Israel and Gaza, the army and and Gaza is in its essence um, a military conduct that is shielded, you know. So it doesn't really matter what the military does, even you know, even if it's potentially considered a war crime, there is no recourse, right? Um, and this is what, and and again, you have, now we have to go back to understand this decision in the context of the military conduct of 2018. So yes. as Hafiz's case is pending, um, we have the Great March of Return. In 2018. And during this great march of return, we see a surge of Israeli, the use of uh, Israeli snipers and live ammunition against unarmed protesters in Gaza. But tell us for a second what the march was. Some of our listeners won't know. So the march of return, as it name, its name indicates, um, was a civilian uh, march of people in Gaza that started in, uh, in 2018 across the Israeli um, militarized fence that encircled Gaza. The idea was, you know, that as we know, most of the population in Gaza are in fact refugees from 1948. And as the name symbolizes, they were demanding to return, um, reasserting the right of return through weekly protests, um, um, again, unarmed, uh, peaceful protests um, uh, that spanned for over, for a few months. And so this starts in 2018, and I have to say that uh, Ahmed Abortema, the, the organizer, um, or one of the organizers of the March of Return, was targeted and his family uh, was killed um, by Israeli warplanes, again, in the last couple months. So I, yeah, so so this is, you know, this, this violence permeates really and underpins all different aspects of our lives, our, our history. And it really shows also how, you know, I think talking about Atiyah today and connecting all these dots is so important because it really reminds us that violence did not start on October 7th, that this is not um, a rupture, it's a structure. Uh, and it's structure that goes way, way, way back. And again, as you said, we are going to talk more about how to understand all of this violence that, of course, has also Jewish-Israeli victims to it. Um, but that's, we'll keep that for a different conversation. Going back, you know, to the, um, to the March of Return. And, and, and so in 2018, the March of Return start, starts happening. Israel starts employing snipers that shoot directly an unarmed uh, population, injuring, according to the UN Commission of Inquiry that we established in 2018 for this purpose, uh, to investigate uh, um, the, the events or the, the Israeli conduct on, um, um, you know, during this period of time. Um, over 180 Palestinians, including over 30 children, were killed by Israeli snipers um, and over 6,000 unarmed demonstrators were shot and injured with live ammunition. So you can think about 6,000 atiyas, you know, in the making through these shootings, maimings, systemic maimings of, of um, you know, the, the, the great march of return. And atiyas case really sets the precedent 
that ba bars all these people from, you know, um, seeking recourse in Israeli courts for their injuries. And these were people who are injured, again, for the most part, at least, for the overwhelming majority, while they are protesting on their land in Gaza, peacefully. Um, ironically, the UN, having mentioned the UN report, ironically or not ironically, perhaps, in a way that highlights the limits of the system, the UN, you know, reaches the conclusion that these are constituting war crimes and potentially crimes against humanity. Um, and, and then the epiphany comes and they demand that Israel must investigate its own conduct. So we already see, you know, this tension and how um, the limits of the international legal system to deliver some sort of justice for Palestinians. Um, yeah, so so th this, this underpins the whole legal process of why Atiyah's case becomes even more uh, important and sets a precedent that is really chilling um, for all of these Palestinians that perhaps had some hope that perhaps they could potentially seek recourse. And now the door is shut. The door is shut. And I, I want to also re remind the listener that um, we just held this absolutely incredible podcast that was really an introductory course in international law um, with you and Dr. Yara Asi and Dr. Ardi Imses together mm -hmm. talking about international law. So when you say uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes, and I want to remind the listener that um, you can go and really learn in detail what the international law system is, where it comes from, and how it shapes and affects what happens to the people between the river and the sea, uh, if you go back to this that particular podcast. So I'm not going to ask you to unpack those pieces now because yeah. you have already <laughs> done that so so beautifully and extensively. Um, but you you just basically set the stage for us for Palestinians in Gaza having no measure of recourse from Israel. The door is the door is shut, and yes. and here and here we are. Um, October 8th, Atiyah and his family were killed. 20,000 more Palestinians have been killed since then and tens of thousands more injured and I think uh, almost 2 million displaced. Um, the level of destruction is almost incomprehensible, but part of, I think, the um, we can talking about Atiyah and his life and the meaning of his case is a way of um, keeping him alive and also each one of those people, as 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 you said in the Great March of Return, it was 6,000, the injured were 6,000 Atiyahs. Now there are many, many, many more tens of thousands of people who would otherwise be in a position to find some measure, demand some measure of recourse, um, which is now completely not available to them. Thank you for explaining all of this to us and, and setting us setting explaining this this scene for us so clearly and so um, comprehensively. So I I just I want to how did you come to write about this in the New York Times? Yeah, I you know, so when I heard the word that 
Atiyah and his family um, were killed on October 8th. Um, it took, I feel like there was a delay even of a day until I heard the news. Um, you know, it struck me. It really, really did strike me. Um, Atiyah is a person whom I never met in person because of the siege um, and because you know, of the policies that really structure and shape our lives. And our ability as lawyers to talk and tell these stories is hindered by that same occupation. So for me, writing about Atiyah and talking about Atiyah was an important uh, way to defy um, you know, this structure and this system that invisibilizes Atiyah and that erases Atiyah and that, you know, from Atiyah was 24 years old, right? And throughout his life, he was shot and paralyzed when he was 15. He was killed when he was 24, obliterated alongside 12 other family members. And for me, the story of Atiyah encapsulates the tragedy, the catastrophe of Palestinian life. Um, Atiyah lived five wars and this was the last that killed him um and his whole life you know Atiyah basically is an indictment to all of us you know in this world that allow the system to continue uninterrupted and that we don't talk about the system um that first injured Atiyah and paralyzed him and later killed him unless there is um, you know, major, major Palestinian loss that disrupts the, the, the um, you know, the so-called status quo. And so I wanted to tell Atiyah's story. I did. I wanted his life to stand and his death um, to stand for something, for life. Um, and I'm remembering here, you know, Rifat um, al-Arir's words, who was again killed two weeks ago uh, in Gaza that says, if I must die, let it be hope, right? Um, and I I wanted Atiyah's life and death to stand for for something, to, 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 to for his story, you know, to be heard, to be told that his name will be remembered. Um, yeah, that's why I, I decided to write about it and speak about it, because I also feel like we owe it to the people of Gaza. Um, I owe it personally as a lawyer to my client that his life is not devalued, um, that this violence that allowed this to happen um, will be highlighted. Um, and this violence does not start when Atiyah was killed. It starts way, way, way before. Thank you for bringing all of that to us, Rabia. Thank you for being so um, so clear and for honoring and remembering Atiyah and making such meaning out of his out of the violence that he lived through and and that killed him. Um, 
I had a, a good friend in Gaza who was killed in this war. And he said to us a few times, if, if I don't survive, I will live on in your heart. And basically asked me and many other friends to be deliberate in remembering him and remembering his life. And um, I'm grateful to you for doing that now. And also with Rifat Alarir. Um, so if there is hope, it's in the talking and the bringing attention and the bringing light and um, not letting any of this pass. So thank you for thank your you. time and your energy. And, um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in today to this episode. Thank you for your attention. Um, please go to our website, fmep.org, www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast, for other content on Gaza, for Rabia's other excellent podcasts and webinars and, and many more. Please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you can stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch many video versions of our podcasts on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minkin signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you.